0: What I'd like to talk about tonight is intention. Our intention in our practice, where are we going with it? And also something about that this is the practice of making intentions. This very practice is the practice of intentions of the heart. So I want to talk about intention. And very much what I wanted to say was a response to some of the questions that started to come up this afternoon just after only one day of practice. Questions like, um, could this be for real? Is this true? Um, Does this really work? How does it work? Where is this going? What's the goal of this practice? Towards what end? It's a favorite phrase in my family, when anyone announces that they're going to do something, everyone else says, towards what end? Where are you going with that? You have to justify why you're going to do whatever it is that you're going to do." with what's your goal? And it's really an important question, because if you know where you're going, if you keep your eye on where you're going, it really is a way of answering all the questions, or the questions have a way of answering themselves if you're clear about where it is that you're going. So there are two ways, I think, that uh, clarity about intention (coughs) can really uh, fortify and strengthen the practice. And one is that it clarifies technique. All the technique questions are answered as one becomes more and more clear about where it is that we're going. Also, clarity about intention is a tremendous motivator of zeal. You can get to see where you're going. You really get excited about going there. So if we talk a little bit first about the first of those two, the clarifying technique. It makes sense. If I know where I'm going, if I have a map, if I know where I'm going, the choice of the means that I will take to get there will be really clear. If I want to go to Maine and not to Florida, I'll want to drive north. If I want to drive north, I need to keep the morning sun on my right hand. I could even drive without any familiarities with the road. Uh, and I could even go without roadsides, if I had signs, if I had the morning sun on my right hand and then I'd know where I was going. But I have an idea of where I'm going and some signposts along the way. I thought I'd tell you two lack of clarity of intention stories uh, in beginning to practice. they stories about my own experience and the two stories a lack of clarity of intention in starting my vipassana practice and the lack of clarity of intention in starting my metta practice which really covers it and i'm really telling you that as a as an encouragement in case you any of you have a lack of clarity when i began my uh, vipassana practice almost 20 years ago my intention i think if i had one at all was to do something that was hip and in and groovy and everyone was doing. And uh, I had another intention to uh, um, fulfill a wish of my husband's who had gone and done some practice and in his normal way come home and said, so this is great, you have to do it. And then kept that up for a while, so part of my intention was to go and do that. The fact that I didn't have a clarity about what I was doing and what I was doing there really didn't help my practice. I got there and I was actually quite diligent about trying to do something. So I was really diligent about the schedule. I sat and I walked. So I had sort of body diligence, but I really didn't have mind diligence because I didn't get really what I was supposed to be doing or towards what end, that really valuable question about towards what end. Years later, really years later, when I became clearer about where it was that I was going and what it was that I was supposed to be doing, I had tremendous clarity about the technique. All of the technique suggestions about rest the attention in the breath, return the attention to the breath, note this, note that, made a great deal of sense to me. And I became a very diligent practicer in the fullest sense of the word. But that's because I really understood where it was that I meant to be going with my practice. So I'd like to tell you, just as a kind of a coda to that little story, that it has, there's a good news and a better news about that. The good news, actually, is that diligence counts, even if you're not clear about your intention. The good news is that diligence counts, bringing the body, sitting and walking, keeping silence Living simply, the mind actually takes care of itself. It actually tends in the direction of clarity. It's actually its fundamental nature. So that even practicing without clarity of intention and clarity of understanding is also all right. The better news is that clarity of intention and understanding about where you're going is even better and really helps to choose. What are the ways in working, what are the techniques of working, that will be most helpful in arriving at the goal? If you know what you're looking for, then you keep your, um, then the understanding of why we're doing what we're doing stays clear. Why the sun ought to be on my right-hand side in the morning, because I want to go north. I like to see pine trees and not palm trees if I want to go to Maine. Those kinds of understandings really keep the journey going in the right direction. The second part of the value of knowing your intention that I wanted to talk about was intention as a motivator of zeal, It's an amplifier of zeal. Not only if I know where I'm going, but if where I'm going looks good to me I'll really hurry to be there. In fact, if Maine looks like Shangri-La I'd probably drive day and night to get there. So it really is um, a kind of a pull to practice if there's an understanding of where you're going and really a faith that it's as wonderful as we think it is. Twenty years ago I really didn't get what enlightenment was. It was kind of an overused word. Everybody was getting enlightened every weekend, it seemed like, in another technique. <clears throat> so, and I actually didn't relate to that very well. I was too young, I think, to really understand it, or maybe too unsophisticated. Even the notion of freedom wasn't so clear to me initially. Freedom from what, or freedom to do what. I didn't quite get freedom. But happiness is not a complicated word. Happiness, I got, and I continue to get. And this meta practice, using the roadmap analogy, is really uh, the road to happiness. If so we're really going to be literary and play with it, we could call it Freedom Road. It's really radical, though, to think or to discover or to believe or to find out that we actually are free. We're free to be content, free to be peaceful, free to be loving, which all amounts to free to be happy, because it's really our fundamental nature. Ultimately that there isn't even a road to get there, because it's actually here. And that actually practice is a way of cutting through all of the confusion, and all the entanglements, that prevent us from manifesting our fundamental nature. This is tremendously exciting. It's really radical. It doesn't feel like happiness is our basic nature. Certainly not all the time. And often, for many people, not even very much of the time. feels more often, I think, that life is beating us up in one way or another. Certainly, life is full of grief and loss and pain and disappointment. In fact, because everything is temporal, that's really the very nature of life experience. Everything comes and goes, losing things all the time. Buddha was right about pain. He was right about suffering as the response to pain, the way we get tangled up in our pain and in our stories. It was really. uh, Moved to be uh, to hear Joseph and say Upandita's words last night about uh, metta practice brings us closer to nearer to happiness, and vipassana practice brings us closer or nearer to uh, suffering, seeing suffering clearly. And I made that in my mind into a circle, and I could see that. Metta practice brings us more closer to happiness, which allows us then to more fully open to the pain that fundamentally is part of incarnate existence and which leads to suffering and entanglements in the mind. And so the happiness and the being in touch with us really opens us to the suffering. And opening to the suffering in the fullest way allows us to see clearly its empty nature and to let go of it and really arrive most fully at happiness. So there's neither a beginning or an end, or a separateness of the practices, but the happiness that allows us to open, in, to open fully to the suffering, that allows us to see it and know it clearly, and then lets us come ultimately to perhaps a more... Um, profound awareness of happiness and freedom. So rather than two separate statements, two, se- two statements in a, in a kind of a ring, leading endlessly, 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 one to the other. So think about um, both metta-practice and vipassana-practice as ultimately being the practices of freedom. So we can think in another way as we clarify the intention, where are we going with this practice? What we're practicing to do, because it's, even though it's our fundamental nature, it doesn't feel like that all the time. We are often tangled up in our stories and caught up in our stories and in our pain and in our grief and in our confusion. And so we're really practicing to realize that we do have the freedom to let go, or actually, probably more properly, to see through all of of the resistances to loving, actually all of the painful resistances to loving, because they're always painful, anger and resentment and rancor and bitterness and grudges, towards oneself, towards others, towards one's body, towards one's stories, towards one's life kind of resentment that we hold out towards life. Why is this happening and why is it happening to me? I think about, in terms of an intention intensifier, what if everyone suddenly, totally believed that this practice cultivates a heart free of clinging, so spacious that it wouldn't get trapped in its stories. And what if everybody suddenly believed that we could cultivate a a heart or a mind so radiant with rapture and with delight that aversion would dissolve immediately upon arising? Not a mind or a heart that's indifferent to life experience, others in our life, but in fact. A heart that's really passionately loving. In the way that one non-selfishly loves everyone and all beings as much as oneself. Such a powerful notion. That's what this practice actually does. I think it's such a radical idea that it's hard to believe. I think if we really believed it, our intention, everyone's intention, would be amazing. Sometimes I think if we knew how many repetitions of those phrases it would be necessary in order to arrive at a heart that released into the ease that's its natural self, no matter how big the number was, We would start in this moment with extreme zeal. Today, I did an experiment. I watched the clock, I watched the second hand on my clock and I said my phrases to myself, more or less in a speed that's generally my cadence of speed. And I discovered that i do five or six sets of four phrases in a minute. So I figured, nine hours of practice a day is 3,000 repetitions. What if we knew that 100,000 repetitions would cultivate that heart of absolute spaciousness? That's just 30 days. Imagine, so a best-selling book, 30 Days to Ultimate Happiness. I mean, it would be an amazing bestseller. So here we are, here we've got 30 days to ultimate happiness. And besides, it's just nine hours a day. What if you did 18 hours a day? You could finish in 15 days. You have 15 days here. You have 15 more days. I mean, imagine. I think that no matter how big the number is, if we knew the number, we'd start in with tremendous dedication. There's a couple of problems. So we don't know what number we're up to in terms of our own life practice. So we don't know how many more we have to go. I actually find that very exciting, because what I say to myself is, since I don't know what the ultimate final number for the heart open totally in spacious peacefulness is, I don't know what the number is and I don't know where I am, it might be this next set of phrases. How do I know that it isn't one moment from now? I think that to myself. It's really very inspiring to me. If I feel a little bit, hmm, lax in the practice, or I'm kind of just doing, but I'm not really there, I think to myself, wait a minute, you don't know that in the next moment is the freedom of happiness. Actually, in the next moment is the freedom of happiness. In this moment, that we are totally attentive to this resolve of the heart, unclouded with anything else, we are in that moment free. Maybe not free for the whole rest of our lives. Maybe not experiencing happiness and peacefulness for the whole rest of our lives. But in that moment, we are happy and peaceful. We have always, in this very moment, not way down the road at some amazing place that we'll arrive at after a long time, in this very moment, the possibility of opening to happiness. That's so radical. When I uh, began my metta practice, Sharon is my metta guru, and when I began my practice, uh, when I'd leave an interview, uh, as I went out the door, she would say to me, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And for a long time, I thought that was a sort of a salutation in California. We say a lot of have a good day and other kinds of nice remarks to people. I didn't get it for a while, but that's an instruction. It's actually the instruction. And it's a radical and revolutionary instruction. The possibility exists, not forever, but in this moment, always. And so I'd be going about the day doing my practice... And as is your experience, as is everyone's experience, you're going along and things are smooth and things are smooth and things are smooth, and all of a sudden they're not. And then all of a sudden the mind is all churned up in some sort of a storm, and unhappiness and doubt, and what am I doing here, and what's this all about, and it doesn't make sense, and da da da, da and all those stories come up, and suddenly, in the mind, Would arise the voice of my teacher saying, Sylvia, be happy. And I'd realize I'm not happy. But I could be. In this moment, I could just drop what's there and make my phrases and be there for them with all of my attention. And it absolutely clears out the fog, and the happiness that's our essential nature manifests itself. It's as simple as that. Really fundamentally, It's to reveal who we are, to sweep away the clouds and reveal who we actually are. And in that moment of clarity, of attention, we really cut through, we dispel those clouds of delusion and reveal ourselves. It's very inspiring to me in two ways to know that this is true. When I'm happy, I'm very inspired by it because I'm living the fact that happiness is possible. We can't. We are free. When I'm not happy, I'm very inspired because I remember that it's possible. I know that it's the potential that we all have. Everyone here knows that. The, everyone here has had moments of freedom, moments of happiness. It's a capacity of the heart. Because it's everyone's fundamental nature. It's not a rare thing to be cultivated over time. It's here and now. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about some um, technical aspects of practice, some questions that came up this afternoon in the question period. Because when we talk about making these phrases with a total dedication and a total attention, total focus, question, how to do that? How should we do that? So there are kind of different hints about practice. Sharon talked this morning about holding each phrase with care and with tenderness cherishing every phrase, as if it's a very delicate and precious object so that you want to hold it strongly enough so that you don't drop it, but also not so strong that you crush it or shatter it. So to hold it tenderly, like something that you love very much, really are absorbed with. Another traditional image is an image of polishing a copper or a brass pot, a pot that metal pot that might shine if you polished it with a cloth. And if you kind of just dust the cloth over it, nothing happens, doesn't shine up. If, however, you rub the cloth too hard, it just doesn't move on the pot, nothing happens. If you smoothly and consistently and with sureness, polish the pot back and forth, rub the pot back and forth, with just the right amount of sustaining diligence, it polishes up. In the same way, you can think about rubbing those phrases that arise in the mind with the attention. Bringing the attention carefully to each phrase. We say different phrases for a reason. And see each phrase anew and afresh. This is this phrase. This is this phrase now. And see it, you can aim the entire attention at it. And from the moment that the phrase arises in the mind, whether one sees it internally, as the words written out in the mind, as of an internal visual image, which some people do, or hear it in the mind, which some people do, or hear and see it, that from the moment that it arises until it passes away, to sustain the attention with it fully from the beginning to the end. So really the quality of precise aiming of the attention and the quality of sustaining the attention, which are crucial for deepening concentration for building a really concentrated state from which metta flows quite naturally. If you think about that as the motivator of doing that, that's the reason for that. I'm now going to really aim the attention carefully. I'm going to sustain the attention from the beginning to the end. I'm going to do it over and over and over again because that will deepen the concentration as concentration deepens the sense of rapture in the mind will arise and metta will be the natural consequence of that. Rapture is the dissolver of aversion in the mind and the natural flow of metta is then absolutely available to us. If we understand how it works, then we can bring that kind of total zeal to the aiming of the mind and the sustaining of the attention. There's a way in which... uh, each of the phrases has a slightly different nuance. We say four different things, actually. Fundamentally, they mean the same thing. We could say one thing. May I be well, may you be well, may all beings be well. That would really be sort of the overriding intention. But we say four different phrases, and each of them has a slightly different nuance. And I think that there's a reason for it. In my experience, I've discovered that it's been valuable for me to feel each phrase, as much as I can, in its intent, in its nuance, in its meaning. might not be able to actually feel the flow of feeling between me and another person for different people, connecting with the sense of the flow of goodwill towards, say, one's benefactor at this point, or oneself, is not so clear. Some people, I think, um, maybe because we're all strung differently, People who are a more emotional temperament or a more sentimental temperament feel that, I think, sooner. Actually feel that kind of warmth of that flow. Some people, that doesn't happen so immediately. Sometimes they worry about it in terms of perhaps they're not such a loving person. I actually am in category two. I think of myself as a loving person, but I'm actually not a very sentimental person. So immediately that I think of someone, I don't so much feel the flow of metta. So what's really helpful for me is to feel the words and feel the phrases. When I say, may I be free from danger, what I like to connect with as I say the phrase is the feeling of protectedness. I don't have to think about I try not to think about what I would be protected from, may this not happen, and may that not happen, and may this not happen. Don't think of any stories about it, because the stories are not, first of all, not so relevant, and second of all, distracting. What I do think about is the feeling of protected, the feeling of safe. And I try to feel that as much as I can, in the mind, in the body, and then let it go. May I have mental happiness? Don't have to think about what specific things might happen that might bring great joy to my life, this story or that story, or when I think about somebody else, may you have mental happiness, what might come to pass that would actually bring them a lot of pleasure in their life. Instead, really what I want to do is connect with the feeling of mental happiness. This is what mental happiness feels like, without a story, but this is what it feels like. Okay, here's a phrase... I bring the attention to it, I sustain the attention to it. If I can, I grok it with my entire mind and body. And then I let it go. And here comes the next phrase. So there's actually, I think, four parts to the practice. One is to have have the mind quite clear about the arising and passing away clarity of what phrase is here sustaining the attention from the beginning to the end, grokking the meaning of the phrase, nuance to nuance to nuance to nuance, shifting. I think that those three parts, by the way, are really amplifiers of concentration. That in each time we leave one phrase and the next phrase comes up, and we re-aim the mind and re-sustain the attention and re-feel the intention of the heart, we have had another moment of really precise, concentrated, clear up mind. And each sequential moment of clarity builds concentration. So each time we let go of a phrase, here comes the next one, and we refocus with a new nuance, we really are deepening the concentration. The fourth part of let it go is a really important instruction as well. Sometimes there's a phrase that comes up for ourselves or for someone else, our benefactor or whoever other persons we'll be working with, or beings we'll be working with in the next days, where suddenly the story of that person, or the feeling that's come up in us, is so interesting, or so delightful, or so compelling, or so whatever, that there's a kind of a pull to hang out with it for a while. i could be, oh, this is a good feeling. I could just stay, hang out here for a while and enjoy this. There's a real um, value to letting it go. And do the next phrase. There's a real, um, it's really an expression of freedom in a certain way, in a quite direct way. Not to hang on to that, let it go, the phrase. Here comes the next one. There's a way that we neither hurry on to the next phrase or push away the next phrase, but just steadfastly be doing the phrases, here they come, here they come, here they come. Especially when uh, people find in the beginning of their practice that their practice is a little dry because perhaps they're not of such a sentimental or an emotional nature, so it's just saying the phrases. There's a real um, um, confirmation in knowing that just saying the phrases and letting them go, saying the phrases and letting them go, with steadfastness, with sincerity, with dedication, itself is doing the work, and then suddenly metta of its own natural self manifests itself. It's not only an expression of um, freedom to let the phrases go, it's really an expression of right understanding on a certain level. The phrases that we use in this may this come to pass. I think they have, a, for me, they have a certain special significance. It's a peculiar part of speech. May it be so. It's it's different from saying, "Oh, I hope it's this way" or "I want it to be that way." It's different to say, "May it be so." I'm thinking about. It, I'm not sure. Maybe someone will write me a note because there are. English professor or something, and tell me what part of speech it is. I think it's a subjunctive, but I'm not sure. May it be so. What I think, it's either the subjunctive case or the letting go, non-grasping, non-clinging case, which actually is the right understanding case, so I'm fine with the grammar. But when we say, may it be so, I think it implies a certain understanding of the heart that says, may it be so if that's the right thing, if this is what needs to happen, if all of the conditions for this have been met, if this is what's the karmic development that's supposed to unfold at this point. Everything happens because of conditions. Nothing happens without a cause. individual karma and group karma. Who knows all of the conditions that impinge on all of the events that come to pass? Sometimes people ask does it really work for other people to make good intentions for them or wish them well? I know it has a good effect on me, I can certainly tell, that my practicing well-wishing for myself or for other people has a transformative effect on me, but often people want to know, well, does it really do something for them? Well, I'm I'm absolutely positive about it doing something for me. There's a way in which I believe since we're fundamentally not separate from each other. Separateness is really illusory. Who knows how our intentions work? I don't know. When people practice intention uh, awareness, in uh, vipassana practice, they mostly do it around physical actions, noticing the intention to lift the arm, the arm lifts, noticing the intention to rise from the pillow, notice then you get up from the pillow, or to take a step, and it becomes clear that no physical event happens without an intention of the mind. Who knows what else happens with an intention of the mind, or the intention of the heart? I like to think that it has an effect. When I first began my practice, one of the things that I said to myself as a way of intensifying my zeal or my motivation in practice, when I was just kind of saying and not really, really attentive, is I would say to myself, Sylvia, say this intention as if everything depends on how you say it. Now, it's a little bit of a tricky instruction. It works for me. I feel comfortable with it. Uh, I think it has the possibility of uh, frightening people sometimes, like if that's true, if everything depends on how I say this, what if I suddenly am having a fantasy about going out for a pizza and maybe the whole world has fall down and meanwhile that I've left off my, my vantage point of wishing well. So that there's a way in which it can serve as a motivator but it doesn't have to serve as a frightener. There's a way sometimes when I... <coughs> I, I know it from myself when I began really to feel the excitement of wishing well, especially for people that I knew and loved, that there lined up a big line of people for whom I could wish these wishes and for whom I did wish the wishes. And sometimes one gets a little bit hurried about I missed so and so or I forgot so and so and there's a sort of alarm, especially for people who are obsessional. Fortunately for me I'm not that but for people who have an obsessional kind of mindset can be really alarming because you think I left out so-and-so and and I left out so-and-so. So So it's really important to remind everybody that everyone is so-and-so. So that it doesn't matter if you left out anyone. You can do resolves only for yourself. You can do resolves only for your benefactor. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, you can do resolves for all beings it's all the same, and it all counts. So absolutely, you don't need to worry about who you left out or who you chose first. On the other hand, that particular reflection that I did for myself of say these phrases for this person, as if everything depends on it, really tremendously shaped my practice. So I tell it to you, you can work with it if it helps you. And while we're talking about making those um, resolves, may this come to pass, may, may I be free from danger, or may you be free from danger, may you have mental happiness, and talking about making them in that kind of relaxed heart and mind state that's a reflection of right understanding. May it come to pass if it's the right time, presumably holding that sort of wisdom that things evolve as they do because of conditions, that we are, each of us, heir to our karma. This is the second story of my lack of clarity of intention in beginning practice. I told you my lack of clarity in beginning my vipassana practice. I started my metta practice quite spontaneously, not in a formal way, uh, with quite a confused intention. I was really moved last night when Joseph was talking about what a tremendous motivator it is of practice to think about. They were practicing out of a concern for all beings and surely we are. And in truth I began my practice out of concern for myself and really in a way that was somewhat frantic. Not in the relaxed way of if it's the right time for me to be happy and content, may it come to pass, but really out of a place of considerable desperateness. In fact, in truth, prior to that time that I began my practice, or sort of my informal spontaneous practice, later to be followed by formal practice, I'd done quite a number of years of vipassana practice, and in truth, metta got on my nerves. I didn't tell that to people. It was kind of my guilty secret because you're not supposed to have meta get on your nerves. You're supposed to like it. And I didn't, we did it in a kind of a cursory way at the end of retreats. And sometimes I'd be in a good space and sometimes I wasn't in a good space. And in ten minutes we were already up to the place of forgiving everyone and I often wasn't in that space. And the uh, uh, the people leading the practice uh, looked to me either like they were in that space, in which case I felt badly that they were and I wasn't, or I thought, maybe they're not, and then they're faking, and I didn't feel good about that either. So totally, it got on my nerves. That was my secret. I only told a few nearest and dearest people because it's an embarrassing secret in these circles. <laughs> but then it came to pass that I was doing some... Um, it was a time of intensive vipassana practice, and it was a, a time of considerable difficulty in my own practice and confusion. It was a considerable period of time of somewhat dramatic and confusing uh, energy states that were part of my experience quite overwhelming and I really didn't know what to do with them and I was exhausted from them and I was trying everything that I knew how to do and went on for really a long, long time and uh, I was devoted to my practice and I was really frightened and disappointed because I kind of felt I'd sort of wandered down a wrong path and that my whole Vipassana practice that I had such confidence in, in terms of really being uh, potentially a, a way of coming to the end of fearfulness and anxiety, it wasn't going to work for me. And I was fearful and I was anxious and I felt terrible and my body felt terrible. And I, I remember I was actually down in Yucca Valley. And some of you, I don't know if any of you have been to. California and sat with us down in the desert there. <clears throat> it was a long way to walk from the meditation hall down to the cabins where we stayed. And finally, early in an evening one night, when people were still sitting in the hall, became so distraught and so desperate, I just left. I couldn't be there anymore. And I went all the way down to my place where I was staying beside myself. I got in the bed. I literally pulled the covers over my head. I would, I think about it now and I feel kind of affectionate for myself as one would for a child. I was in a very bad state. I got in bed, I pulled the covers over my head, and frantically began, spontaneously, without planning to do it, repeating to myself, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be free of suffering, and I didn't make a plan to do it, it just happened and I didn't do it in a relaxed way of may it come to pass it wasn't relaxed it was frantic but it was focused it absolutely was focused and it had tremendous intention behind it Mind did not wander from that resolve and by and by all discovered that everything changed not by and by long by and by but by and by some time later, in that very bed, with the covers over my head, I felt differently. And what was going on with me began to subside. And I felt like I had opened a great space around myself. And my experience was my experience, but there was a space around it. Somehow the mind got bigger in that space, the mind got softer. All the things that we talk about, about the mind as the capacity to be soft, and to be spacious, it does. Everything changed in that experience, including my view of what metta practice was about. Uh, Certainly led to my resolve to do formal and intense metta practice, which I soon after that began to do. I experienced the metta in that moment as a protection. Really may I be free of danger. It's a protection practice. It's not a protection practice in a magical way from the natural vicissitudes of life. It's a natural world and things will happen to all of us. But it's a protection practice against the heart-shattering that often is the result of the natural vicissitudes of life. It's a softener of the heart so that it feels but it doesn't shatter. That's what I think. So there's one more very important question to uh, just mention before we finish. And Really, I've said it in lots of ways. This is just another way to say it. Sometimes people wonder, even as they begin to practice and retreat and make these resolves and actually feel relaxed and softer and happier and more loving, they think, uh, is this really going to last? Is this too good to be true? Or is this a temporary state of lovingness that I have conditioned by doing these phrases, and when I leave here, Well, in a certain way, when we leave here, I hope we will all be doing the phrases all the time, day and night, as we do our life, because we can. But we won't be doing them with the one pointed focus that we're doing here. So have we constructed some special state that will not last? Special purified state. Many many years ago. Oh, probably sometime in the 60s, 25 years ago probably, the same time that we were all doing different enlightenment courses every weekend, we were also all doing different kinds of uh, other strange and wonderful things. One of them was dietary regimes. And at one point I decided to go on a dietary regime that was a quite complicated fast. I hesitated, by the way, by telling the story. I thought maybe somebody here is really passionately involved with fasting, and I'll hurt their feelings. but it was a complicated fast. We didn't eat food for some period of time, do all kinds of powders and potions and um, additives. and uh, it was one of the things that we did in those days. We purified ourselves. and when I none of my friends thought it was strange that I was doing it. It was actually quite a protracted fast. When I think back about it, it seems a little strange. I was I was twenty-five years younger, I was in the best of health. I ate a very healthy diet, a, a correct diet, a spiritually correct diet, but nevertheless I was fasting. <laughs> and none of my friends thought that was strange. They thought that was fine. I say, what are you doing? I'm taking these powders and these pills, that was fine my daughter, Elizabeth, said to me, Mom, what are you doing? So I explained, I'm purifying my system and by drinking this, whatever it is, and taking these potions and powders, my entire system will be purified. And she thought about it a while, and she said, but Mom, really, why are you doing this? She said, at the end of it, you're gonna eat food again and you'll be all unpurified." (laughs) So, And it was kind of like an important, thing to think about. It's kind of out of the mouths of babes. We all kind of were startled. No one had challenged us. (laughs) We just did it. So the question is, will we become all unpurified? No. Not here. Because we are not doing something that is not our natural state. We are not cultivating some temporary thing that only continues as long as a certain unusual form of practice continues. What we're really doing, and Joseph said that last night, is we are using the Brahma-viharas as the objects of meditation. The Brahma-viharas being those natural mind states, natural mind attributes of... um, Attributes, not states. Attributes of loving-kindness, of compassion, of sympathetic joy and equanimity, and we're using them as the objects of our attention. We're keeping our eye on them, as if, as an act of faith, really. Say, I know that's there. Think of practice really as an act of faith. If I know that that's there, as our natural, as my natural self, as my inner essence. If I keep my eye on that, so to speak, if I make all of my attention on that characteristic which I know to be there, what I do is I cut through all of the fog that prevents me from connecting with that natural self. What we are doing is just seeing through the fog of entanglements and confusion, so that our most essential nature radiates through. That's what the making of these resolves is in a certain way. Steadily keeping your eye on where you're going, seeing the end point through all of the fogs, The image that came up for me, I guess because I had so much roadmap image of this, was that if you were driving to Maine and it was very foggy, if you kept your headlights on all the time, you kept them pointed straight ahead, you could, from time to time, check a road sign or see a pine tree. Maybe sometimes there'd be a little clarity in the clouds. You could see where the sun is. You could check that you were going north. Here, we're going back to ourselves in the most fundamental sense. That's the most natural thing in the world. So let's sit for some minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.